911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're gonna make it out of here, we gotta work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. She was hired to fix DC's 911 problems. It was the worst I'd ever seen. But instead says she was fired for exposing the failures. The blame belongs in leadership. Now the I-team digs into what fueled the mayor's decision. Tonight on 7 News at 5. This is DeRay, and welcome to Boss Save the People. On this episode, it's me, DR, Miles, and Kaya talking about the news from the past two weeks that you might have missed with regard to race and justice and equity that you should have heard about. And then Miles sits down and does an interview with award-winning activist and journalist Raquel Willis about her new book, The Risk It Takes to Bloom, on life and liberation. Here we go. This week on Keep It, actress Danielle Brooks, the one and only, stops by to talk about her first ever Oscar nomination for her portrayal of Sophia in the latest adaptation of The Color Purple. Lewis and Ira dig into Danielle's onset experience, her approach to the role, and even how she chose to do things differently than Oprah did back in 1985. To hear this interview and more pop culture news, tune into new episodes of Keep It every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Milesy Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. Well, I don't know if y'all or y'all relatives have gone out to get you a pair of Donald Trump sneakers. But evidently, oh us blacks really like tennis <laughs> shoes. <laughs> so much so that we're going to go out and get them and wear them to the polls to vote for Donald Trump. Mm. This is so ridiculous. I don't even know where to start. I, I mean, I think Miles had it right in our group chat when he was like, when then when they were like, you need basically put a hard ER on this. So, I mean, <laughs> that's what it's feeling like. That's what it's giving. I think the one thing that folks did, you know, because sometimes I'll like tune into Fox News just to see what they talk about. And one thing that they so conveniently brushed over was he was getting booed a little bit too at this, whatever this grand unveiling of the sneaker was. At a sneaker conference. Yeah. So it's just a wild thing, but super curious what what y'all are thinking about this, what it was giving, what your social circles are talking about around this. I think I've advanced what I said in the group chat to put, to say, (laughs) Trump just put the hard ER in sneaker. As you were saying, (laughs) that was was more clever. So I, I got some chance to work that out in the last couple of days. I think the thing that was most wild about listening to, I don't know the pundit's name, but listening to him speak about, oh, and Black people love sneakers and it's about the culture and stuff, is that... It's 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 something when a race of people think that you're savage or violent or criminal. It's something else when those race of people think that you're dumb. It's something else when those race of people think that you're easily manipulated, that you're shallow, that you are to- you're totally swayed by spray painted uh, gold sneakers. That is a little bit different. I'm actually used to a certain type of criminality being projected on me, but 
oh, you think I'm this simple that you could spray paint a sneaker and I'm going to go with it? And yeah, that that that's my perspective of it is that, oh, n- not only... Uh, not only are you all white supremacists, but but y'all think that we're simple. <laughs> like I don't know that that was the most insulting part about it. First of all, I'm a I'm a tabby fan myself, so I've moved on to a loafer, a tabby, and also it's really stereotyping a very specific section of black people too. And I think that was like those black people who also get pathologized by other black people. So any other. Every six months, like a cycle, Twitter might talk about how come you got Jordans, but you ain't got a passport, and they'll start pathologizing Black people, um, a certain uh, section of Black people. And I think those are also the Black people who are most harmed by the policies by with Trump. So, yeah, it's just it's just a, a super ugh, evil, sticky situation. You know, what I do think is interesting is... Um... To your point, DR, about the fact that people are booing Trump at SneakerCon, there was actually a really big backlash to Trump's performance at SneakerCon by sneakerheads. They were like, y'all, this place is about sneakers. We ain't never had candidates show up. Like, why is Trump doing this? Why are you platforming this? The second thing I'll say is um, with regard to people pushing back and booing Trump, it is really interesting around uh, about the way the media participates in mythologizing Trump in a good way. So the New York Times ran a full story on a guy who paid $9,000 for a pair of those sneakers. A full story, not just a recap of the sneakers, but a profile of a guy who paid $9,000. And you're like, I don't, you know, there are a lot of things for the newspaper record to cover. I don't really know if a a life story of a guy who paid $9,000 at an auction for Trump tennis shoes is like a feature story, but it does participate in this idea because you read it and you, it sort of participates in the idea of something special about these shoes. And and you're like, no, this guy just was a Trump person who had a lot of disposable cash. The third thing I think is- What was the color of the Trump guy? Not that it matters. He was Russian. Thank God. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it matters, but thank God he wasn't black. That adds, a, name, whole nother, that adds yeah. a whole other layer to the story, but we He's won't Russian. go there. His name is Roman Sharif. Uh, but the third thing that sort of, you know, it's almost like I set you up for that, Miles, is that black people love a good sneaker. You know, like there's a deep history of us making these sneakers cool. You, you know, I think about Baltimore and the Air Force Ones. Mm-hmm. I think about some places in the Reeboks, the K-Swiss, like, you know, K-Swiss. deep history. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the hype piece, and I say this as somebody who have, I have hundreds of tennis shoes, is that the white people are buying, they are the people sort of owning the resale market. They just are. They are the people buying 700 pairs of a shoe and reselling it. They are the people spending 5K, 6K. Black people are not like, first of all, a lot of black people don't have disposable income to do that, but white people are the people shelling out a ton of money for these shoes in the resale market. It just is true. So much so that when you think about the scandals and reselling, it is white people it was like the, the the son of one of the Nike execs. You know what I mean? So what's really annoying about this story, because the story now is the shoes sold out. You know, he had a thousand shoes. They all sold out. And you're like, I don't know if black people did that. You know, like, I'm, yeah. I will bet my you do dollar. Know. You do know. And we did not. We did we not didn't. do that. But because uh-huh. of the pathologizing around black people in shoes, the narrative is like, if they sold. And you're like, no. Like, y'all, if y'all leave us alone. Right. 
Part of what's interesting to me about this is that like he is he is laying a narrative around black people with the sneakers. The sneakers came out the day after he was convicted of or ordered to pay, you know, three hundred and fifty five million dollars as part of his civil fraud case. Shout out to Tish flipping James. Anyway, um, so so he he has said also this week, oh, um, black people, you know, are connecting with me because they see me as being prosecuted, persecuted by the criminal justice system and they can relate to that. So there's this, you know, we're compadres because we're both done wrong by the criminal justice system. I got these sneakers. I think we're going to see increasing pain or signaling to the Black community from Trump. And I think that that is one dangerous, but this sneaker thing is just stupid. Like, it's not even a good sneaker. We'll make we'll make a sneaker popular if it's a good sneaker. This is not a good sneaker. Anyway, um, I, I just think this is, it. it's so bananas. And if you go to the website, not only he's selling those sneakers, he also has two other sneakers and perfume and all kinds of other stuff that is just ridiculous. I don't think that we've ever had a candidate who has tried to market himself in this particular way. But, you know, his base actually responds to this stuff and they put money in his pocket. And, you know, I, I, yeah, it's, it, this is fascinating to watch. There was a mm-hmm. um, NBA player who you probably never, I didn't hear about him, Jonathan Isaac. But he tweeted, you know, I think I might wear these shoes on the court. And everybody was like, sir, let it go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, People, but that's why that look, that's why he did it, because we never heard of him and now we're talking about him. <laughs> right. And I do know. I mean, I know that we have some people who are um, who are, you know, hooked up with with Gucci on this very call. (laughs) And I know that Gucci has a gold sneaker because my own inner uh, materialistic Negro inside of me was contemplating what would I would I buy that sneaker when it drops that Gucci sneaker. So is there not any call that we can make? I know, I know that it's very hard in fashion. I, I know this because I know Fashion Nova and so many other places still designs, <laughs> still designs regularly without any any type of uh, legal action. But can Gucci at least can somebody make a call and say, do y'all want to sue or do we want to maybe make a Biden Harris sneaker that is? Uh, can we can we not make a Biden Harris sneaker? That'd be helpful. No, because because Joe needs to let us know that he be walking, that he that that's how he's that's how he stays cognitive, and that that's a sneaker I want. Whatever got Joe ticket and running the the nation is the sneaker I want because he's because he's running the nation. Cognitive, yeah, cardiovascular, brain, yeah. Mm. We're jumping in. Um, well, you know, still on the, I mean, I don't want to spend more time talking about Donald Trump, but just quickly, he did win the South Carolina primary. Um, what I'm curious about, and he, like, won it completely outright, like, you know, Nikki Haley in her own state did not Nikki, fare well. Nikki, Nikki, uh. Um, but what I'm curious to find out is actually how moderates are feeling in South Carolina, um, which I want to do some digging on. Cause I, it, it could be similar to the case in Iowa where Trump didn't do well with 
you know, college educated white folks with moderate leaning white folks. And so I want to see if that were also true in South Carolina. I can't verify that for y'all just yet. Um, but that, that, that is what happened in South Carolina. My, my biggest bet, and this is just like, you know, I, I am, I am no lawyer and I am no, uh, yeah. So I'm just saying my biggest bet when it comes to Trump and when it comes to Biden Harris is that the biggest obstacle is not going to be about Trump winning. It's going to be about Biden Harris not exciting those moderate voters. I think the numbness that's like happening that I'm seeing pe- like people go through is the biggest um, battlefield when it comes to it. But I think that a lot of I think as many Americans that are going, I think if you're not for Trump right now, you're not for Trump. Like if and if you're for Trump right now, there's no convince you otherwise. I think the biggest thing when it comes to the voting population is going to be getting people really excited to get to the polls for Biden. Does that is that is that make sense? Does that how does that sound to y'all? I mean, I think I think that's reasonable. I think that's right because the I mean, um, uh, Rashida Tlaib I think is telling people in her state to vote uncommitted, right? Like, and so there, like the problem with Biden-Harris is going to be vote or stay home and opt out. And so I think you're right about their ability to animate. We've talked a lot on in this conversation about their failure to convey the good things that are happening and the outcomes that they're producing. Um, I, I mean, for me, the South Carolina thing was just, first of all, I mean, shameful, Nikki Haley. Like, you've been the governor of South Carolina twice, right? And twice. <laughs> and those people are like, yeah, no thanks. I don't want that. That signals <laughs> a lot. That that says a lot to me, right? Your own people, your people. Um, and and I think her whole campaign now is far more interesting to me than it was a couple weeks ago because she is betting that this dude is going to get convicted or something that he is going to have to drop out of the race and she's going to be the only Republican left standing. And I think this like this is now very interesting for me to watch. The Koch brothers just took their money away from her campaign, but there are still lots of people, moderate mm-hmm. Republicans, who are really supporting her and. If she can stand and it does happen that he gets knocked out, it will be a very different presidential race. Right. Um, She will animate women in different ways. All of these like, you know, flubs and problems that she's created so far are going to go away. She will be a moderate, reasonable Republican and we will have a very different race. And so, you know, nine months is a long time and lots of things can happen. Um, But I I thought the South Carolina thing was interesting because any place else, if a former, twice former governor got, you know, trounced in their own state, they'd just be gone. And that is not exactly, she still got 40% of the vote, I think. Um, And so this is like, we got a little scrap going on. But she believes in misogyny now. I will say the thing that is really interesting to Bill Haley is not only did she lose, but that she has done a phenomenal job of wiggling out of a whole host of policy points that really make no sense. And they're not even deep. And I don't know, you know, I think I might have long term things about celebrity and all this other stuff, but I think about something I wish the campaign would put together, Biden campaign or some pack or somebody would be like a just a fact kit for people who interview her because like I even think about like her saying that she's white 
And then you put a picture of her family up and you're like, why'd you check off white? Like, you know, there's some basic things. So I think about her interview on The Breakfast Club and say what you will about The Breakfast Club. You know, they have a big audience and she just wiggled out of every, like every single thing that you're like, there really is not a good answer for this. And it's like a consequence of what happens when you don't have reporters doing these <laughs> interviews. But like, is there a way to build the capacity for people who do? Because, you know, I think you're right, Kyle. Women will support and all this stuff. But her policy positions are like very anti-woman. They're very misogynistic. They are very, but like, how do we help but people we- understand that better? But we live in a time where people are not voting for policy anything. People are voting for cult of personality. Like, that's the problem. I mean, Trump's policies are ridiculous. Are there policies? Is there a platform? No, no, no. We don't even know what his policies are. People are not voting for substantive policy things or whether or not, you know, that person's values reflect your... Like, that's out the window, so she can wriggle out. She can say whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I wish it wasn't out the window. And I think and I think that even though it is out the window, I guess, can we put it back in the window? Meaning, talk to, can, talk can, to your can friends Biden, in, in the Republican Party about why I think, why they I think that party, I think any party that if you go extreme enough into it, you become a Nazi, has lost its political and moral depth. So, like, I'm, so my opinion is just, like, I think that Democrats have enough space to make that a thing again. I think that there has not been enough attention to that, but making that a thing, but making that a thing again, like, literally just hashtag what, what he, what has Biden done? I disagree. Then, I disagree what, completely. What I feel like the Democrats have always taken the moral high ground, have always stood on policy, like have always been the party of logic and reason and values and alignment. And the Republicans showed us what happens when you throw that out and just go for raw power and they've won. And so I think, and so one, like we, I think the Democrats are struggling to even get ourselves together on the way we usually get down because we're looking over here and we're like, this is not like this moral high ground, this policy stuff, this alignment, this is what's good and right for people is not actually working the way the, you know, throw it all to hell is working on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the problem. Like, you know, people, people want to hear what they want to hear. We are like, it is to me, it is, it's not an indictment of the party. It's an indictment of people and where people are in, in their lives, I guess, in that they are willing to, you know, like something, so many, I I saw this chart on, I don't know, something this weekend, which said like 60 something percent of the people who voted in South Carolina exit polls, it might not be the exact number, but something like that, thought that Trump being convicted would not disqualify him for the presidency. What? Mm-hmm. What? Like, who are, this is not a Democratic or Republican Party thing. This is who are we as a people that we are willing to allow a convicted felon to lead the United States? Like, what? I, I don't disagree. But I still think that people are supporting Trump because of policies. I think that when you look at what's happening with Trump as far as um, 
the evangelical church. I think the reason why they're doing this with Trump, the reason why they're propping him up are because of these policies that are going to keep it, keep it moving. And I think that, yes, to, to us, it looks like, oh, it's just about blindly supporting Trump, but it's blindly supporting Trump because Trump was ordained by Father God in the sky to let these certain types of pro- mm-hmm. uh, policies stay advanced so we can stay a Christian state. So just like... Um, uh, let's say the this, this, this student loan debt activates certain people on the left and a lot of people who will be Democrats. I think there are a lot more situations, a lot more policies that would activate us too. So I think that in to other people who are not involved in left politics or who don't care about the left or politics in general will be like, oh, they're just for Biden or they're just for Bernie Sanders. But I don't think that that's what it would be. It would be about these policies activating people um and i think, I think the y'all are thing- saying the the same thing and it's like it is it is an intertwined thing this weekend i was in lancaster pennsylvania for my niece's field hockey tournament we were staying at the marriott penn square in lancaster there was a gun show happening at that hotel because it is adjoined to the lancaster convention center oh you said you were on the field <laughs> I was on the front line okay, <laughs> over this weekend and it is, it is, it is something to behold because it is these, these folks want their guns, but there is a culture to, to Kaya's point around, for example, one of the, one of the moms was saying how there was a party happening next door with the gun folks. And she calls security to say, can you please tell them, you know, I have a sleeping child here that has a game in the morning. Da, 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 da. I guess the the gun folks figured out who made the phone call and then bang, bang, bang on this woman's door. And she's got two sleeping kids in the room with her. She's terrified. She knows there's a gun show happening. So I say that as a very small example that probably doesn't get me to generalization, obviously, but it is something that's going on with the policy around wanting to hold on to this gun. and then. For as a culture, as 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 a as an identity, this this is also what that means to me, right? And I think that goes, I, I, you know, I think you all are saying the same thing because it ends yeah, I, up defining a people. It in both of those things end up defining a people, and then they and then it becomes this sort of worshiping cult like fanaticism around the things and the and but how to also act upon the things. It, exactly. it is. I would say behind every also, cult of personality, the the letting them do that there. That's the other thing. I would say behind every cult of personality we see, there's probably a cult of policy. And I think that like <clears throat> not balancing your view of that is to me, it, it, it's kind of like losing, losing the, the plot a little bit. Um, mm. and, and, and they did it with everybody. They would do it with anybody. And I think part of what makes Trump a sexy candidate to do that with is because he is so depraved. And even and even and even God could work through him. That is a huge part of his advancement in that party. I I, I would say it's a chicken and an egg situation. Yeah. Is yeah. Trump's policies animating the people, or are Trump's policies again? I would argue that there are no policies, but are is this wave reflecting what people want? That's how he won in 2016. They listened to what middle America wanted and wasn't getting from the liberal democratic establishment. And then they reflected those values in their campaigns and their narratives. And so I like, 
you know, maybe I would have a little bit more respect for Trump if I thought that he had this, you know, policy or he and his people had this policy platform. That I, I think he is reflecting what the people want, but neither here nor there. It's problematic either way it goes, chicken or egg. And yeah. we're seeing it play out in Alabama. I was saying I agree with everything you said. And I think that now we're essentially saying the same thing because I was just trying to when you were saying the cult of personality and Trump and they'll do anything for Trump, I'm like, well, let's not forget that Trump adopted and absorbed these policies and there's ways for the left to adopt and absorb and make a big deal about certain policies too to animate the moderates and, and the people on the left too. That's the only thing that I was um, yeah, the, expressing. The only thing I'll add is that I do think one of the strategic things that is different is that the right lies, like it's not just a matter of like, good storytelling and strategy. They literally just lie to people. And you're like, that is that is not necessarily the left. Like it is hard to, sometimes it is hard to counter that some of, some of that stuff because people are believing things and you're just like, that just isn't true. Or like I think about IVF is a really good example is that you will get, you know, the Alabama Supreme Court comes out and says that IVF might be wrapped up in, or not might be, they said that IVF is a child. And you get these people who supported that in the past, who have voted for things that support that. And on TV, they're like, I've never supported that. And you're like, that just is a lot. That is just untrue. Well, the left lies too, so. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Provincetown Tourism. Are you planning to go to a trip to P-Town, to Provincetown this year? If you're not, you should think about it. If you've been before or if it's your first time, you deserve to enjoy life on the wild side. If you take pride in where you travel, P-Town's your place. Everything you want to do, you can do in P-Town. There's dining, dancing, entertainment, glamour, hiking, biking, beaches. If you want to do it, you can find it in Provincetown. It's queer friendly, it's quirky, you can be yourself and just have a good time. And the cool thing is that Every time you visit, your experience will never be the same. P-Town has a lot of theme weeks for everybody of all identities. Pride, Girl Splash, Bear Week, Family Week, plus Carnival and Trans Week. Go visit Provincetown. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both Black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. My news this week is about. Well, I'm just gonna read. I'm just gonna read the um the um article. This is fresh. I woke up to this news. We record on Monday, so you know, bear with me, y'all. Um, an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force has died after he set himself on fire outside the is- Israel Embassy in Washington D.C. on Sunday in apparent protest of the ongoing Israel Hamas war, which he described as a genocide. The Metropolitan Police Department identified the deceased demonstrator in a statement to Time on Monday as a 25-year-old Aaron Bushnell of San Antonio, Texas. Um, Obviously, this news is, to me, important for lots of reasons, not just because it just happened, but I think every now and then, it's interesting how my algorithm showed me this. So I saw this... uh, Servicemen on fire. And then underneath it, the next tweet was a DJ Khaled tweet where two dark-skinned black men were carrying DJ Khaled because DJ Khaled didn't want to get his Jordans dirty. Um, and that, those, that was right, under, right underneath each other. So I say that to say is sometimes in this world, we can, f- it, 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 uh, we can forget what this war is doing to people. Um what this war means to us in our generation. And it's also interesting because what I wasn't there, I'm, I'm a young spring chicken, but from what I can tell from what I've read and what I've studied about Vietnam, there was this kind of focus in, and it was really hard to distract people. I was watching this documentary about Cabaret and how one of the reasons why Cabaret got greenlit was simply because nobody was going to see those glossy MGM musicals when there was a war going on. And now we're in this weird moment where we'll see people selling things, we'll get very excited about these cultural touchstone moments, about dancing and about, you know, I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna litigate against any individual pop star or business. But then we'll be interrupted by something like this that really reminds us that people have very strong feelings about this. People have very strong point of views about this and even those people involved in it are dealing with this this tremendous amount of guilt and, conf- and, and conflict with their nation. And this is one of those defining situations where, unfortunately, this is an extreme example of this. But this is what's happening in so many people's heads who are not part of service, who are part of service, who believed in our nation and now are seeing this. And like, what? where are my tax dollars going, going to? This slow awakening for lack of better words, that's happening in so many people is is real. And I think this story highlights that for me. Um, of course, I think about also, it, it's, it's weird. And I think that's one of the reasons, besides the obvious that I wanted to bring this here, because 
my mind goes two ways. I think about mental health struggles. I think about being so young. I think about is 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 this is it contextualizing this in a mental health struggle way a, a, a way to go? But also, there's a precedence for people protesting like this. There's a precedence for people putting their bodies on the line when they think something is really morally wrong and mm-hmm. and, and setting themselves ablaze or st- or starving themselves and dying and and doing a lot of different things like that. So I don't necessarily know what the right answer is, but it felt right to bring it to you all so we can talk it out and see where everybody else's heads are at when it comes to this subject matter. Regardless, I think that this is going to be one of those moments in our history where we'll see a lot of people have shifted to either deeper politics, deeper radicalization, or deeper apathy, y'all. Like, that's how I really see it, because... The, the government is is helping fund this 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 genocide on our on our watch. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the thing that I'm just trying to process and work out in my mind. And I think I've, I've been trying to do that, but I put my daddy to rest on October 6th and then October 7th happened. Mm. So I think I am just in a place of trying to like find profound and greater understanding in that many things can be true at once. Right. And I think losing my dad has helped me not help me. It has pushed me (laughs) for my own mental health to think about things as complex and as nuanced and as big as I can. And I think what's happening in our culture is that we think of things in two ways. That's all you get. Good or bad, good or evil, right or wrong. And so, and I, I think with Aaron, and this is just so tragic and just so unbelievably profoundly sad, is that, Miles, everything that you're saying is, I think, is, is correct around being, being eternally and deeply fed up, being, feeling hopeless, feeling like the only thing that you can do is put your body on the line. And I think for depending on who you are in this country. I think some of us are walking around every single day, putting our bodies on the line. And I think there are others who as form a protest or otherwise do what Aaron has done. And I think, um, I think that his fed upness can be a truth and a struggle with mental health can also be a truth. Um, but it is, how do we, how do we honor this young man now and what do we what do we do with this and how do we hold this in a way that gets us gets us out of a looking at it at two different ways you know what i'm saying and i think that's that's what i'm that's what i that's that's just the path that i'm on <laughs> mm-hmm. um and 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 encouraging others others to do the same because there's no, and, and the fact of the matter is, you know, there peace. There's a there's a conversation that's going to happen in Paris. I think this week or next around um, a ceasefire um, in advance of Ramadan. Ramadan's in two weeks, so trying to figure out how this ceasefire happens with um, the fighting stopping, hostages, Israeli hostages going, you know, getting released. Palestinian prisoners getting released, 
So those conversations are happening. But I think the other thing is that those conversations just seem so far away and seem so inaccessible and seem so far from all of the protest, struggle, thinking, feeling that's happening all over the world. Right. Um, And do people know about that? And then there's, you know, and and for some, for lots of reasons, there can't be transparency around that process, but there also needs to be a communication around what, what is happening so that people can um, feel like they are taking care of, of, of humanity. Um, So that's all I got. That's all I know, as my dad would say. I had two thoughts around this. The first um, is is really about how this act of setting yourself on fire was is intentionally attention grabbing in a particular way. And I feel like if I think about like my social media feed and how much we had been hearing about Israel and Gaza um, over the last month or so, the media has really stopped covering it. I feel like maybe it's my algorithm or whatever, but I just see less and less conversation and engagement about the war. And it's a, it feels a little bit like it is drifting out of our consciousness, um, except in these like largely political ways where we read about, you know, people negotiating and that kind of thing. But I felt like we were getting a steady diet of frontline, how this was affecting individual people and what this this um, self-immolation I learned a new word, um, what it means to set yourself on fire, does is it brings attention back to this in a way that I think is really important, that reminds us that this is not just about governments and negotiations and ceasefires and whatnot. This is about individual people who are deeply affected every single day by this, including members of our military who have to carry out um, orders that they don't always agree with. Um, and it just, I don't know, it it re set for me the priority around this. Um, and I hope that it resets the priority around this for other people. It's so easy to just let this become part of the daily humdrum of news. And I think this young man wanted to remind us that this is an issue that is, you know, it is still happening. There are still people being affected by it. And I can't remember what my second point was, so I will just close with that. The two things I want to add, one is uh, sort of piggybacking off what you said, Kaya, about the media coverage. What has been interesting about this act of self-immolation is that so many of the original reports refuse to identify this as a form of protest. So the Huffington Post's first comment or first article about it said, and I quote, officials did not say whether the self-immolation was a form of protest. And that is important because in the video, so there's a video of this that went viral on Twitter of, of the act of self-immolation. He says, I'm about to commit an extreme form of protest. Like he says it. Mm-hmm. So for mm-hmm. the media to just refuse to say that is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't know in preparing for this conversation was that the Arab Spring was actually precipitated by mm-hmm. self-immolation. Right. That's right, Dre. Mm-hmm. Had no mm-hmm. clue. Um, and... You know, I think about this from us standing in the street in 2014. There is something really powerful about seeing people 
who are everyday people stand up that really does inspire a whole set of people to just do different things, right? Maybe yes. not all of them exactly, but it does bring a sense of urgency and a, a sense of like what you're willing to put on the line that um, that is different. And I was struck by him being so young. I don't, you know, he's 25. I don't yeah. know why in my mind he was older, but it's like you, you did this and had a full life ahead of you. And we're like, you know, this is unacceptable what's happening um, in Gaza, so... And I remember during the Arab Spring, too, I was in Yemen in 2011. I went right after. Um, And there were so many photos of young protesters that had died. They were everywhere. Everywhere. Um, And I think what still sits with me is like, that was in 2011. And Yemen has been having wars on and off currently in one right now since then and we're in 2024 so i think it's also just like a larger you know things are a mess in many 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 places and how can we start to sensitize ourselves so that we are holding space and active in a way culturally that allows allows us to be you know What's happening in Haiti right now? And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say what's happening in Palestine is an important thing because it it obviously it is, but it is also how can we just be more global as Americans? I think maybe that's what I'm getting at. It's like I feel like we're just you know, you go to even when you go to Europe, the BBC is telling you what's happening and they're not perfect, but in other parts of the world, we just don't even we have no idea. And I think that's designed, Diara, because I think the more you, I mean, this is a serviceman, you know, like this was somebody who who I, spent, who, I'm who, telling who, you, who was, who was inside. So I think that the mm-hmm. more that you're not distracted by um, a football game or a pop star <clears throat> or a new business or 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 fast food or culture wars and and stuff like that, the more that you're not distracted by that, you see that the United States is is complicit with a lot of the destruction and war and unfairness that's happening globally. So I think that us being insular and narcissistic is a part of the plan. It has to be, you know. And I think that when I you're think, more enlightened, think, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. And I because here's here's what doing work for the United States State Department did for me. And I worked in Liberia, Bangladesh, Costa Rica, Yemen, Kenya, a whole and a whole host of a Macedonia, a whole host of places. It helped me to understand the magnitude and power and efficiency of the United States government. And what it did was make me a patriot for the United States of America. And I can understand that this is a place that oppresses me. I can understand what my history is, what my ancestors went through. But I also can understand if this thing is motored correctly and what you and Kaya were talking about earlier with moral fortitude and with policy, the the change that can happen for generations to come obviously is completely profound. So I think I think that's the other thing, right? It's like all these... United States is doing crazy things and has been doing it historically. We talk about the migrant crisis that has a lot to do with interventions by the United States government. But we also can fix that. We also can fix what's happening at the border. Like we actually have 
the resource. Like that's what, that's what our national guard is organized to do. That's what our army is organized to do. Like go into places, engineer things and fix them. So I'll get off of my, my grandstand, but I think that that's. Absolutely. Absolutely. Drives me crazy. In my news this week, the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, happened last week. <laughs> we just, this is really, this episode. Left, right, left, right, left, right. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> and um, I saw a piece that talked about the fact that the Nazis had a very friendly reception at the CPAC conference this year, which is not usually how CPAC rolls. <laughs> In fact, previously, CPAC would eject the extreme Nazis um, and white supremacists, but not this year, friends, not this year. This year, um, they were out and about. They had badges. They were official. They were in the building. They were discussing race science. They were discussing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. They were using, openly using the N-word. And what does CPAC do? Nathan. Um, In fact, like they were taking pictures of themselves legitimately uh, with their official badges and being their full Nazi selves. And nobody did anything about it. Again, in stark contrast to previous years where they used to get put out, now they are welcomed at the CPAC conference. In addition to the Nazis, some of you may have seen the viral video of Jack Posobiec, who is a conservative personality, who was at CPAC calling for an end to democracy and the establishment of a theocracy or a Christian-focused government. That was a highlight of the conference this year. Um, and, you know, I and, and when they asked the CPAC organizers for comment, of course, they were silent. So for me, this comes straight out of Auntie Maya's when people show you who they are, believe them. Don't tell me that the conservative people are not racist. Don't tell me that they're not anti-Semitic. Don't tell me, look, I know who you are by the company that you keep. So you welcome the Nazis. You welcome the use of the N-word. You welcome race science and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and the theocracy. And friends, that's who you about to vote for when you vote for these people. That's all. And... Oh, child. Just connecting what um what we were just talking about, what Diara was just saying to this story, I think that's one of the that's one of the reasons that we have to kind of continuously bring up what's going on and and and, and be real and be uh, uh, real about it and <sighs> because the gaslighting happens. And so how how about this? I grew up hearing that the conservative party um, were conservative mainly about money and some some very particular Christian ideas that I didn't agree with, but but I was able to understand. As I got older, I saw that if you go right enough, you will end up a Nazi. To me... That seems like there is a wound and a sickness in the very 
system we're trying to get people to vote for. If I can't lose a Democratic vote or a Democratic election and it not be infested with Nazism, that se- that seems weird to me. That seems weird to me. And if we have a whole generation of 25-year-olds and 21-year-olds and 18-year-olds being awakened to that, that that that's scary to me. And uh, um, it makes me think of, what's the, the James Baldwin quote? Um, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I assist on the right to critique her perpetually. Like, that to me is like what's like... A, a, a big thi- a big thing like I don't hate America I don't hate this nation I I really believe in the ideas around it in in the in in what in what it stands for and what it can be but th- this that's just ridiculous that's ridiculous it's it's obviously it's our news but also it's just wild that that is the state of American politics right now that if you go conservative enough we're talking Nazism that it, 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 it it's so strange. The last thing I'll say too, because I've been watching the new look that's on Apple TV, which is about um, Chanel, Christian Dior, and um, Balenciaga during um, uh, uh, the Nazi occupation in Europe. And so it talks about all these different fashion icons' responses to that, and it's written it's really, really good. Um, I think the normalcy part is is mm-hmm. is, is what gets me. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that it's these lush, lavish, beautiful, gilded. Um, Dior and Chanel designs parties with champagne and caviar and and swastikas in the background, and I still see this as our swastikas in the background. Like this is this this just can't be the normal, um, and 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 it, and it can't just be something that we bring up and say, isn't this weird that what what the right is doing? This is kind of deciding the 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 American destiny. These these things right here are deciding the 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 the, the destiny of America. We have to be outraged about them. Sorry, I'm, I'm that, that pissed me off. Yeah. Um, the only thing I'll say is that I do think there was a there was a time where uh, calling something racist actually meant a lot more, and I think that the phrase just doesn't do the work that it did before. So when I think about the Nazis, I think there are a lot of people who just don't hear the like that's racist that like they it just they just respond less to it. So the question for me becomes, how do we help people understand the texture to that? And I will, you know, I said it here on the pod a while ago, but I think poverty is really interesting. So uh, the way we talk about it, like I've been talking to people, as you know, Louisiana and Texas now have pulled out of the summer food stamp program. And when I ask people, how much money do you think people got in food stamps per kid per month? They say things like $200, $250, and it's $40. The summer food stamp program is $40 a kid per month. And when I tell people that, they're like, this is crazy. They like get it. But that those things are like the texture of what racism looks like or disadvantage or disinvestment. And I think the word itself means less. So when I think about this, I didn't know this until you brought it up. I, I didn't see this story. I heard nobody talking about it. It wasn't a clip. Did not go viral. I literally still haven't seen it on social media since you like if you hadn't brought it, I wouldn't have known. And I think about like what I would have to do to like help my family or friends be like, oh, this is sort of wild. I'd have to show them the texture of why this matters, because the reality is Trump sort of made sort of casual racism mainstream. Like it just you see it so much now that you're not even shocked by it anymore. And I do think that the softening of what is racist is actually the real 
crazy thing that Trump did. And I think that we have to help people figure out the texture because I do think people are outraged by the texture when they see it. But just the idea, I think, is no longer enraging to people. I just don't know about that. <laughs> like, I like I, th- I think most people know Nazis showing up somewhere. Bad news. And I think I, 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 I don't know if it's a if 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 it's a critical or intellectual. I don't understand the texture of it thing. I think it's a suppression of the news thing. I think that it's it, that has to be it. But I, 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 and I know a lot of different types of Black folks. There, and I know a different a lot of different types of white folks. I grew up in suburban Georgia, very close to rural Georgia. All of the people who wear the rebel flags still understood that Nazism was bad. And, and even when they were yeah, wielding it, they saying. were wielding it. We don't disagree. Uh-huh. That's just not what I said. So bad is different than outraged. And I do think people understand it's bad, but a lot of stuff is bad. I think that people, I think people see the Trump rallies and think that's bad. But I think that like sort of the container of what is racist, I think a lot of people are like, well, it's all bad. We know people are racist. Like, I just don't think it's like outrageous anymore. I think there was a moment where like Nazis walking down the street would be outrageous. People would be like, this is crazy. But they just had a rally in Nashville at noon. Like it just, you know, it was like covered on the news as like a a regular rally. So I just don't think people are outraged anymore. I think that even with your example, as I think that it has become people see the Trump flags or the Confederate flags and sort of like, well, that's racist. Like it just, I don't think people are like outraged. I think they're like, Mm -hmm. well, that was racist. And I do think the question is like, how do we help the outrage happen? I think that's right, Dre, because I I feel like that's what happened with abortion. I feel like it was bit by bit, everyone being like, oh, that's wild. Hmm, hmm, Interesting. And now- Ban. And I also, you know, and I I had conversations and, and, you know, I make, I move throughout the whole country all the time, every in and out, all these places. I feel like we all do, but I move. And I know in some places that's a privilege that I can move freely, but I've had conversations with my grandparents, especially my, my mom's parents. My grandma was Mexican. My grandpa was black. Where they couldn't move together as a couple safely without fear or harm in their lives. You know what I'm saying? And I think, Dre, that's what, what you're saying, that's what it's bringing up for me, is that there's actually going to be, like, if this, if this stuff continues, we're going to be back to Jim Crow days where it's actually... And, and this is obviously, this is still true. It's still so, so true in America today where we just can't walk in certain spaces. But there's going to be a, a, a palpable, even more extreme sort of boundary on where we can go and how we can feel comfort. And that is, that's already true for so many people, but it's going to be a lot more, it's going to be out of control scaled true. You see, y'all understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and to Miles's point, like, I do think one of the things I think is really interesting and dangerous that we got to figure out, and kind of your point, everybody's point, actually, is like, I think people are exhausted. I think that our people are exhausted about hearing everything's about race. Like, it, they don't, they're not denying that it's true. I think they are overwhelmed by it. So I think that is like a, a real yes. thing we get to with. And the right, because they lie, people sort of like, I, there's a guy I went to college with who argued me down that DeSantis did not do the book ban. And he was like, no, no, I was at this thing and DeSantis said he did not sign a bill 
saying the book ban. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, Lies. no, he really did do the book ban. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, 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 the bill was not called book ban. That's just like left-wing propaganda. And I'm like, and I know him. And he's like, no, 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 no. DeSantis is really clear that that's a, that that is not true, that he did not enable book ban. And it's just like, what do you do? You know, I'm spending 30 minutes going back and forth with this guy because you know, he is listening to this talking point being like, it just didn't happen. And I, and at, at a point I'm exhausted. I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'm gonna let him go. Exactly. And I'm going to the next, you know what I mean? And that is this sort of weird thing that's happening. And I think that the right is actually playing on black conservatism in a way that is dishonest, but politically effective. And I don't mm-hmm. think that we have a good response to it. Cause no. I think that more black people believe what Clinton said about abortion, which was like, what, safe, safe, effective, and rare or something like that? Safe, legal, and rare? Like, I think a lot of people actually, but which is not a ban. It just, you know, I might not think you should get an abortion, but, like, you should have the right to. Like, that sort of, I think a lot of people I know mm-hmm. believe that. But the ban is, a, you know, they don't want to, they don't want not the choice to have it. And, you know, I think that playing on Black conservatism has, is actually an effective strategy for the right. I know we've been talking. And y'all know the other thing that the Supreme Court is hearing this week, and I don't know. If, I don't know if this came out today, um, but basically taking, like, looking at the the big social media giants and saying that you actually can't decide what's hate speech and what's not. Like everything needs to be allowed, based off big, uh, Greg Abbott's law in Texas, where he felt that a lot of the conser- conservative views on social media were being suppressed. And so created a law in Texas that actually pr- like protected those folks uh, against against the social media giants. So I think all that to say everything we're saying, depending on how the Supreme Court goes on this, I think, Dre, what the misinformation, the disinformation that we'll hear will be even more extreme if the Supreme Court doesn't go the right way on this one. So, y'all, my news is it's, it's very quick. I'm not going I'm just going to uh, give you a couple couple thoughts on it. But essentially, um I did. I actually didn't know this. I was in a conversation with some folks and they were like, DR, what do you think about AOC supporting Joe Biden? And I was like, who? What's she doing? Um, and so I think having not known that AOC had come out, I didn't even see this news that she came out supporting Joe Biden in January, like endorsed him for president, but then also came out um, early last week um, and, and basically you know, the the rallying cry that happened around President Biden, around his 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 competency, um, given the um the report that came out, she was basically one of the folks that came out and said, you know, he's I, I'm gonna support one of the most successful presidents that we've ever had. And so I don't know, I just I wanted to talk about this because it just seems it just seems given her journey of where she started, um, and you know, being a you know, um, self-described socialist, um, and just given a lot, a lot of what the animosity, her animosity, uh, has been against the democratic party and, and not for, not for wrong reasons. Don't, 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 um, I don't want to be on, on the wrong, on the wrong side of things, but I think I just found it very interesting kind of this, this song change, tune change that's happening with her and her support of Joe Biden. You know, she was, she was very much a Bernie person um, in, in, in the early days. And, you know, I think he's done quite well given the limitations that we have. Um, I do think there are ebbs and flows, but essentially she's saying, I think 
Right now, when it comes to the president's age, folks are talking about how he's 81. But we have to look at, first of all, Donald Trump, who is around the same age. They had gone to high school together. And beyond that, Donald Trump has 91 indictments. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyhow, I just wanted to bring this to the pod and share it because I it wasn't on my radar. I don't know if y'all if this has come up for y'all at all, but um, I just found it interesting. Yeah, I think a couple of things can be true true about uh, about this. I think the I think the first thing is that you know nobody wants to see Trump reelected. <laughs> um, so 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 everybody's kind of like okay, let's let's just get on board and 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 and, and endorse him. And then also the second thing, which is true for a lot of for for a lot of people, is that most people get more conservative as they age, and that looks different um, for for everybody. But we might be literally seeing that with AOC. Is that you know she might be getting looking more. Um, she might be becoming what we would see as more conservative because she's getting older and she's more absorbed into government politics. And that's that's often a, a result of that, too. But I also think, Miles, it is it is she's she's been watching because, for example. There right now are 46,000 infrastructure projects happening across the United States of America. That is because of Joe Biden's work on infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. We just saw another billion dollars. It was a couple billion dollars of debt that was canceled last week. So I think I, I think that's right. I think as, as someone who has experienced getting more conservative with age, <laughs> um, also just getting more, it's probably less conservative, just more fed up. Um, I, I think it is interesting for somebody who has kind of sat in Congress and has to watch things happen or not happen at the guidance, at the behest of an administration. So I, I think I just I just don't want to leave that out. I think what you're saying is true, but I also think she's actually been part and parcel of a lot of these, a lot of particularly around infrastructure, particularly around the, the, the student debt thing. I think she's watched and participated and has, did the fight with him. And it's like, oh, OK. Um, I I agree, Diara. There's a piece in the article that I want to just read um, because it first talks about how many of the people who got her elected as this firebrand democratic socialist are frustrated by this new version of AOC. Mm -hmm. um, but it says in the six years since she's been elected, she's found the solid footing of a pragmatic disruptor. She'll cause trouble, but not needlessly or at a real cost to her party. And I think that pragmatism mm -hmm. is the difference between inside and outside. It's one thing to sit outside of the system and to throw, you know, stones and to burn it down and to whatnot. Once you get in the system and understand how it works, I think you don't use the same strategies. Now, people could say good, bad or otherwise, but I think that what she is doing is understanding her context and figuring out how to use the new tools and resources that she has as a congresswoman to advance her agenda. And so I thought this was really, really interesting to write. It even like I, I think about your you know, like moves from protest to policy. It doesn't mean that you don't still protest or won't still protest, mm -hmm. but you have understood or figured out that there are policy levers to pull. And so you could stay in the streets or you could start moving with some different tools and strategies. And that, that to me was the message that I was taking away from, from how she is now presenting herself. 
Yeah, I'll just say I think AOC is one of the most interesting political figures of our time and our generation. I'm interested to see what she continues to do. I, um, you know, not secretly hope that she runs to be the next mayor of New York City just because I think she could do it. I think that, you know, Kaya, those of us who have to work inside administration and make day-to-day decisions, it is a different version of hard. And I'd be interested to see her do that uh, because she has like the moral fortitude to do it and would learn the skills. And if these jokers can do it, she can, she can do it better than them. And um, so I'm interested in that. Um, My news is, is one that I only saw once online. I was shocked by it. And I feel like a broken record being like, I'm shocked by something. Uh, but in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, the school committee has called on the governor to send in the National Guard to address what they call issues of violence. Now, let me quote the letter that they sent. They said that recent events at Brockton High School prompted us to seek immediate assistance to prevent a potential tragedy. The National Guard's expertise in crisis management and community support can offer a vital temporary intervention, allowing for a comprehensive long-term solution to be developed in consultation with all relevant stakeholders. The concerns that they list include incidents related to violence, security concerns, and substance abuse. And then they go on, and this is perhaps the most fascinating part of this to me. They go on to say other concerning conditions include students wandering the halls, engaging in altercations and causing disruptions in classrooms, students leaving school premises without authorizations and incidents of trespassing, with individuals gaining access to school property without proper authorization. All right, that was the last one. And I just am, you know, that to me sounds like a normal high school. Kids skipping class happens in a lot of high schools. Kids sort of misbehaving during class. When I saw this, I thought that there must have been some wild incident. And it wasn't. It was, you know, every reporting on this has been general high school. So the governor of Massachusetts, as you know, is the only person who can call in the National Guard. She has just sort of sidestepped this and not really engaged it. But I just am, I don't even know what it means that a random high school is calling in the National, what's the National Guard to come police the school and thinks that that's going to restore order. Luckily, the mayor of the town is like, I don't support this. It's the school committee, a majority of the school committee that has sent this letter, but... I just had to bring it because this was some stuff that I didn't, I was floored by. Especially since in Oklahoma, the non-binary student, Nex Benedict, was killed in a bathroom fight. And there's no thought to bring, you know, I feel like, I don't think you should ever bring in the National Guard, but I think the fact that like, we're not, <laughs> there's such disparate conversations around the safety of these kids and who is responsible for keeping them safe and how do we, how do we do that? Um, I don't know. That's where my mind went. It's just, this is just, it's just wild. Um, my mind went to who, what does Brockton high school look like? And what does Brockton look like? Well, we already know that. And Brockton is a place that is 40% black and 32% white. I don't really know who the other people are, but you can 
believe or the internet says that Brockton High School is 90% minority. Now, what I couldn't do is Google what the demographics of the faculty. At first, I tried to Google the school committee to see what they look like. And their names are up here. Um, The mayor is also part of the school committee, interestingly enough. Um, But they are just names and not pictures of them. But I could imagine what the school committee might look like. I could guess. And this is a reason why it is important um, for people to be involved in local school board politics because school boards matter. They make lots of decisions around what is happening in schools and around schools. And if you don't want your neighbors calling the National Guard on your colorful high schoolers, then you need to make sure that you are part of your school committee or your school board. Um, it also, it just speaks to the criminalization of young people of color like this literally you want you want to call a national guard on your people and what does this say about the adults at Brockton High School who are they why are they allowing there schools all over the country are dealing with young people who have similar challenges in lots of different places and somehow or another their teachers their principals their security guards are doing the hard hard work it is horrible it is rough in schools right now um, but Nobody else out here is thinking they should call the National Guard out on their children. Who are the adults in this situation is my question. Shout out to the mayor for not even entertaining this. Um, And let's have a real conversation about the people running that school and whether or not they should be running that school. If the only way that they can think to resolve the issues happening there are to call in a military force on teenagers. I didn't afford it. The only thing I can add is I'm also spiritually prepared for um, the people who who are who are trying to make this happen to look like us. It, for whatever reason, it reminded me of um, the the super predator uh, when Hillary was running, and then a lot of people who were not around in the '90s, including um, I am people who <laughs> were not around the '90s, who were kind of like shocked about how uh, sometimes even black people are, um, are are conspirators when it comes to stuff like this, and how um, certain choices that are made that seem like, oh, we we know exactly what those people look like. That sometimes they do look like us, and sometimes we don't have the resources or the imaginations of how to address the things that are happening in the schools. But it always will make me sad and concerned when schools and prisons look more and more and more and more and more and more and more alike. Mm-hmm. I did just want to offer a clarification, Miles, to something you said earlier that people get more conservative over time. Um, you know, there's recent po- research that suggests that political affiliation is actually really stable over time, more mm-hmm. stable than we thought. But li- people who identify as liberal if anybody changes, those people are more likely to change conservative. Conservatives mm-hmm. are not more likely to change anything, but that our political affiliations are generally lifetime, which is interesting. And, and I think that the, the, also the, the nuances, and I think Kaya said the word pragmatic. I think that's what happens. That's what happens for me, is it's yeah. more about pragmatism than it is about I can't think of anything I'm conservative about. I'm very conservative about a coffee shop needs to have almond milk and oat milk. <laughs> but I think, I think beyond, yeah. I can't think of anything else that would be, you know what I'm saying? That would fall into, into conservatism 
I think there's also just a, you know, you, you, you care less. And this is again, for my own purpose, I care less about what people think. And that that's also whether they are, whoever they are in the democratic party or in an industry or whatever, I, my view is going to be what my view is. And I think, but I think actually, I think miles, your generation actually had, has that I had to come to that. Mm -hmm. I felt like I needed to, you know, have my chops and do this and do that to be able to have a, a, a valued voice in a conversation. So I think that's where, that's definitely where my, my appreciation, um, and, and kind of being inspired by this generation that is like, this well, is my view. Well, don't be too right? inspired because it's still the same cycle. You have to wait until we're 40 and 50 to see if it's truly inspiring. And I think AOC being pragmatic is good. Like, I think that her moving is good. I think that, you know, for every firebrand that becomes, I don't know. A steam brand, I don't know, something a less a less fiery brand, whatever. Um, there needs to be new fire brands that kind of have that same energy, and I think that's how things progress in the progressive parties. Um, but yeah, the more people get money, jobs, all uh, property, all these things uh, influence you to get more conservative. The more people have um, status and, and social circles of people um, that that are more conservative or have access, all those things influence what people want to do. A part of the Blackest Book Club programming, I got to speak to author um, and just bad gal, um, Raquel Willis. It was such a great, great conversation to have with her about her book, um, The Risks It Takes to Bloom. I hope you all enjoy it. Um, we have so enjoyed this conversation around Black literature that we're going to be continuing these talks all up until March. And maybe we'll focus specifically on some more women authors because it's going to be Women History Month. But I think this is going to be something that will last. Um, you know, I'm, I'm advocating that we just, that we never turn Black as Book Club off. It got to be Black and, 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 and literate all year long. So I'm, I'm, super, I'm super excited about that. We also want to say, you know, just giving our uh, just prayers up to Hadia Brabant, who passed away, who's a HIV and AIDS activist. She died at 39. There's so much work to do in the HIV and AIDS landscape, and she definitely just tore the roof off. I remember watching her talk to, um, to uh, I was watching Nick News because I was even informed at a very young age. And I remember her seeing her um, speak to Magic Johnson with um, Linda Ellerby and me having such a, uh, uh, just, it just broke my mind open that every child is not living the life I was living. And also it gave my mother and my older sister such space to talk to me about what was happening specifically around HIV and AIDS. So although Hydea Broadbent is not here with us in the physical, her spirit and her activism is living on through everybody who's more enlightened and strengthened through her work. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. We are here with superwoman Raquel Willis. Um, (laughs) That's how I'm going to refer to you this whole conversation. Um, Again, I felt like I knew you as an acquaintance and like through the like periphery of just like knowing I feel like the black queer world is so small um after reading this book and then watching all your interviews now I feel like I n- probably have too bad of a parasocial relationship with you like so if I get too fresh <laughs> be like be like we ain't friends like that because I feel like I know you so well now um yeah the first thing I want to say is congratulations on the book Thank you. Thank it's, you so much. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. Mm. It's really... And I guess this leads into, like, one of my first questions I want to ask you. It's a really good balance between being honest, but also not recreating trauma for a white gaze because that's maybe what makes this more marketable. What Was that a conscious effort? Mm. Is that something that you thought about? Because you did it pretty masterfully. Because I was waiting for the shoe mm. to drop. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she just refuses to go to a Tyler Perry place with this. And I love it. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, I don't know that I I see my life in that way. Um, mm. And so I guess that's a testament to my view and my vantage point. I mean, I I definitely think I've had these difficult moments, but I guess when I consider the difficult moments of my life, whether it was reckoning with the death of my father and my grandma and reckoning with uh, these moments of violence and murder within the Black trans community specifically, I guess there's an understanding that there's an unfortunate universality to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also uh, there's a collective experience that we've had within Black, queer, and trans movement. 
right. um, around these dynamics. So, yeah, I mean, I think the melodramatic approach, I don't know how much of an entry point that is versus letting folks understand that our struggles are all connected. Right, right. And again, I think you just did it masterfully. And I and I get maybe not, I think it does start with that point of view. Maybe that's just not how you think about your own life or the world. So why would you articulate it like that? But um, mm-hmm. it reminds me, I haven't seen the film yet, but it um, uh, from what I've gathered around the film, um, American Fiction, Oh yes. So like, and how he like, <laughs> ha- like, kind of like goes into the certain tropes, and then it ends up being a big hit. So I always, when I queer that and trans that, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, when you, when I tell you, like, it, it, it there's definitely incentive and in, to like maybe um to do that. And I was really, to be honest, like relieved when reading the text. I was really relieved. I was like, wow, okay, there's a way to still be honest and still go into the dark without um. Uh, t- turning it into like literary like minstrelsy <laughs> for like a better word. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I definitely think that well it's balance. It- it's a weird balance because I think when I started working in, Arne- in earnest and on this book in 2020 it felt like we were in a different place. Like it felt like this idea of sensationalism around trans people's experiences and bodies had kind of fallen away um, Mm -hmm. in mainstream culture a little bit. I mean, of course, people like um, Laverne Cox and Janet Mock, you know, broke down the door in so many ways around some of those really prurient, uh, inquiries into the trans experience some, you know, eight or so years ago. So right. I felt like there was a freedom here for me to speak candidly without feeling like I had to do the one-on-one thing or um, heighten what I feel like is just like my life, right? Like my right. life is my life. I don't see it as Um, this kind of melodramatic thing. Now, what's been interesting has been now in this time, a a few years removed from when I started working on the book, and we're in a different kind of era of discourse around trans experiences where because of conservative politicians, because of this hateful legislation that's been moving across the country over the last three years. Um, in some ways, some of that weird sensationalist bigotry has returned and ignorance has returned. And so I've had interviews, I mean, most recently... I'm glad, I'm glad that you said it first. <laughs> where I, I have been a bit shocked at some of the retreading of ignorance that has happened. I had an ABC interview... Um, back closer to when the book released in November that was that started out with a passage 
about my body and my experience in relationship to my genitalia as if that was some major theme in the book. And really, that was only about a paragraph or so at that particular point in the book. And it was just weird that they started the interview with that. Or I had an interview with Tore recently for that show and that podcast. And the rollout of that on social media, the clips that were chosen from an otherwise candid, vulnerable interview were ones that focused on these really reductive conversations from a cisgender straight lens around my dating life. And the two longest relationships uh, or deepest relationships I talk about in the book are actually relationships with trans masculine people. So that the takeaway from my book and that discussion was to focus on, well, when do you tell cis men that you're trans if you're dating them. It was just fucking weird, to be quite frank. <laughs> Raquel, I'm so glad you went there first because I was gonna go there because <laughs> I have been a I'm very proud of you in this in this book. I am so utterly disappointed in the things that I've witnessed you have to interact with because it's almost as if, to your point, that every single thing that Janet Mock did, every single thing that Laverne Cox did, because let's let's be real, being that exceptional Black trans queer person is a sacrifice when you're over Mm -hmm. here telling people about one-on-one because we know how we, 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 you know, again, we're acquaintances, but at the same time, we kind of roll in similar circles. So you know how how gnarly we can talk. You know how, you know, what we can really, what we really talk about. So for us to put on these kind of like tokenized, exceptional veneers and teach you this elementary stuff just for you to make, um, you know, shade room clickbait. I was... (laughs) <laughs> I was I was I was floored. I'm not gonna hold you. I was floored. I was floored. Um that leads me to I have two very unimportant but important questions to me. Mm-hmm. First, are we excited about Beyonce? I am excited about Beyonce and Act Two. I think it's going to be much broader than country. I I know people are saying, "Oh, this is a country album." I think that's going to be one element, but just like she did with Act One, right? Like it was all these different versions of dance music from house to disco, post-disco, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to get country. I think we're going to get some folk, maybe some Americana, roots, bluesy music. I think it's going to be a broad palette, but I am excited. And I do have to be honest, I mean, having watched, of course, the Super Bowl and Usher's amazing performance, there was a lot going on. (laughs) I feel like he felt like he had to check off a lot of boxes, but otherwise I was entertained. But what's hard in this moment as someone with a big empathetic heart, a social justice uh, commitment, is like, how do we hold these big moments that are supposed to be an escape or joy that are, you know, of course, always laden with these capitalist urges and all of that stuff. And also the destruction of 
of course, so many peoples around the world from the Congo to the Sudan and then, of course, in Palestine. Like, it is yeah. hard. And I I don't think that we're having real conversations around holding all of this at once. I think it, it is hard in this moment to, yeah, hold all of that because we know the complicity that all of us are a part of in America, in the United States. I love, I I love that you, um, that you took it there because I think that like, you know, again, when I first started making like, maybe like digital commentary on the internet, my first, uh, you know, I was always a little bit of a rebellious person. So people not necessarily liking what I had to say was like not new to me. I remember. But what I'm witnessing is that more people are talking how I how we were talking, you know. Mm-hmm. And we at first we were like the wet blankets, and we were like you, you we can't enjoy anything and stuff like that. And now more and more people are really having to to to, to really have to reconcile with the fact that yes, you are in this big corporate fantasy thing that so many of our dearest artists are a part of that make us feel good but at the same time there's a bomb being dropped and these things are happening right against each other and I think we can see things happening in um, you know Palestine and then see people in Israel um, at a concert or celebrating and feel like oh that feels dystopian but really the whole globe is our home and if mm-hmm. somebody's being bombed anywhere then we we're, we are playing football and watching these spectacular performances while terror is happening at the same time and I think I'm seeing so many people reconcile um, re- like reconcile with that so. Uh, Thank you for taking it there, which is why I wanted to give it to you because I knew we would you would take it to a, a deeper place. My second question, mm-hmm. my second question mm-hmm. is: Are you tired of hearing or being asked about Dave Chappelle? I don't get asked about him often, so it was interesting mm. to be asked about him in this recent interview. Um, so, not even in your yeah. casual life. In my casual life. No, no. I mean, I feel like the folks who are in my life um, know where I stand, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I, I think what grates on me is that I hate that the entry points that we have to talk about transness or queerness are often when these cis het people invoke us, right? Mm -hmm. It's never enough for us to just create things, to commentate, to critique on our own. Our biggest entry points into these larger conversations are almost always when somebody comes at us sideways. And then, like you said to your previous point, um, then we're called wet blankets or we can't take a joke. And it's like, yeah, I I don't want you who are also <laughs> the person that's killing me to make the joke. Right. Like, why does that make sense to you? Right, right. Read, read the oppression, read the room. Um, but I love that that didn't happen. That's also probably telling me that I do find myself in like... Um, 
I've always, I don't know what's been about. I've always found myself in like straight dude places a lot of times, like since like my okay player st- stuff. So I'll always, when I'm with my like queer trans family, of course, that's just not coming up. But um, yeah. I will find myself being like the person who's asked about it. I'm like, I haven't cared about Dave Chappelle since the Dave Chappelle Black Party. So why are you asking me? Um, since he was funny. Okay, come on, come on. Um, so <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> What one of my favorite things that you did in the book, um, and mm. there's a couple of literary things that you did, but I guess one of my favorite like pop cultural things that you did was you kind of brought me back to Michael Jordan because I forgot about Michael Jordan, like which is interesting mm-hmm. thing to say. But I was like, no, I was there with my I had Space Jam cups. I was doing so when you the were monsters, sa- all of it. So when you were saying it, I was it's cab, Miss Lola, honey. Come on, come on, because she had the high pony. She mm-hmm. had, she had the, um, she, she had, she had got her little, um, her little uh, Botox right here. Oh. So her, she had the, the, the nice little fox eyes, yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, um, but that let that led me to like have a like a bigger um idea because I was like oh Michael Jordan and then of course the other Michael that kind of dominated our um, landscape was Michael Jackson and mm-hmm. I was wondering because I felt like who's the better part there's just really not a better person for me to ask this question is like what yeah. is your relationship today with black excellence and exceptionalism like when I when I when you brought me there I was like wow we are really we drink the kind of Gen X Kool-Aid of like exceptionalism and and by the time we were growing up we had the Michael Jacksons and the Michael Jordans and the Oprahs and you know to be to be transparent we're all kind of I think negotiating that so I was wondering like what what is what is your place when it comes to that black exceptionalism today Mm. so it's it's interesting um that you bring up the Michael Jackson mention. No one else has done that. And I really tried to use that as, you know, an avatar for this, to your point, exceptional version of Black masculinity, right? Like something Mm. to aspire to. And especially I think in the 90s and 2000s, I feel like some of it has fallen away a little bit, but this idea of striving to be, you know, this kind of paragon of like black masculine excellence in particular was like be an athlete, you know, or, or be something like that. Right. Um, And of course, as a young queer person who later realized, oh, I'm also trans, like that didn't fit. And I, I felt that discord early on and not necessarily Mm. about the athletic part, although I was nobody's athlete throughout (laughs) my life, (laughs) but just about these ideals around black masculinity and and another thing that I reference is, you know, the Cosby show and the Huxables, which right. I think is so interesting to think about the grip and the chokehold that the Cosby show had over this idea of Black excellence in the 80s and 90s. Because, of course, since then, we've peeled back some layers. We know, you know, Bill Cosby is this serial sexual abuser, all of these different things, which I think is very telling. But I think this idea of Black excellence, we have to 
continue to unpack it, right? Like, I think we don't interrogate enough that our idea of Black excellence is often wrapped up in this kind of capitalistic excellence, right? Whether whether we look at who we were just talking about, right? The Carters, right? As much as we may love their art, they are a capitalist to the core, right? And really right, push this right. idea that capitalism will save Black folks or lead Black folks to Black liberation. And that's not true. Um, We also have to interrogate respectability, right? A large part of Black excellence is also how much it can give us an easier route to the American dream, right? right? Which often means how much we can bow to white supremacy, whether it's like in the workplace, right? Whether it's like losing, you know, your natural kind of dialect to speak a certain way or having to wear your hair a certain way or any of these different things. Those are like basic examples. Or it's this idea that you have to be in bed with cis heteronormativity. Right. And it's like, I want Black folks to know, baby, you're inherently gender nonconforming. And just like you Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) You weren't about to tap that and I, okay. So we're saying Black folks are inherently gender nonconforming. Can we we tease that out a little bit? Because I like it. I'm going there. So black folks are inherently gender nonconforming. So many groups are, right? But I I use this frame particularly for black folks because we black we talk about black people. I've been told throughout my life that I'm not doing gender right. Mm. That I'm not boy enough, and then of course now not woman enough. I want black cishet folks to know that you will never be man enough and you will never be woman enough. And the way that you, many of you often come at queer and trans people is also a reflection of the way that y'all come at each other. Right. And so much of this is like a competition on who can be stronger, who can dominate a category or an identity. And it's like, None of us are winning. We've got to completely let these scripts go and allow each other to move on our own paths and be the drivers of our own destinies. Ooh, I always say, first of all, Raquel, I like love you. Like again, <laughs> already felt like I've always felt such a already felt such a kindred vibe with you after reading and seeing so many interviews and been so being so proud of you. Um, but I've always said, I was like, you know, if we're being realistic, um, Black people arrived to America as technology. Te- we came mm. here as brooms. We came here as, we came here as brooms. We came here as mops. And that's how come so many, and I get it because so many of the um, requests for humanity are wrapped up in gender. So um, it Till happens. And then what is the response to that? I'm a man. And then mm-hmm. a, wo- a woman wants to be able to um, get have self-empowerment, self-determination. And what does she say? Ain't I a woman? Like that's been so yes. wrapped up in it. 
it, but we have mm-hmm. to really, really engage with the idea that you can't state something or request something or ask something that you were granted, which means that we were never really granted gender because we never have fully been granted humanity. And I think that like our identities disrupt that. Because how dare you not continue the fight and continue the relay race? And I'm like, because there there might be something better for 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 all of us. You know, it goes beyond just the black experience. I mean, white folks are also never going to live up to the ideals that they set out for themselves either. Mm-hmm. And so this like policing that is such a part of our culture has got to go on so many levels. Absolutely. Um, I'm kind of poking around my questions and seeing where it goes. So um, (laughs) this is a question I've waited for later, but it feels so right. So I wanted to know, is um, is realness relevant anymore? Mm, is realness relevant? While you're pondering, I'm going to like insert a little bit of one-on-one because I feel like this is about 102, realness. Go for it, yes. Okay, but but, but essentially realness is something that was um, created inside of the ballroom scene and it's language given to somebody who is of a queer or trans identity who passes. So this is somebody who you would see who is um, who's a trans woman and you would never... Um, because of strictly aesthetics, you would never th- uh, think that, oh, she has a trans journey. You would think that, oh, this is a, a, a biological female who then dorned womanhood, which is the, the cis mm-hmm. journey. Um, and realness has then, you know, taken many sprouts and stuff like that. So I always say that sometimes I give like academic realness, even though my background is so many different things. So I'm like, I'm like, yes, I'm giving my, I was just, I just um, was talking to my, um, my partner and they saw me in my um, turtleneck as I'm talking to you in my glasses. And I'm like, yes, I'm in my bell hooks drag today, but like, it's such a performance <laughs> and like, can, and, and what can you get away with? So what can with you that get being, away with? So well, with, with that being said, what do you, do you think realness is relevant? I think authenticity is relevant because Mm. I don't think that realness is always authentic. Okay. Um, For as it lands on me right now, this ability to be able to assimilate in a cisgender society as a trans person that's a type of currency. That's a type of protection. Um, but we should be fighting for a world where that isn't necessary, right? Right. And I think we can acknowledge that currency and protection that comes from realness right. without making that the goal of our work, right? Right. And so I know that I check a lot of boxes off on many different levels, right? Not just in being cisgender assumed, but also in terms of, you know, social economic privilege, particularly growing up in a middle class family or access to education and on and on. But I'm not fighting for, and I don't believe that liberation should just be for folks who check off all of those boxes. And that's not what I want the message of my work to be. So I try to be very clear about that. And, you know, 
the difference between realness and authenticity to me is like, when we talk about realness, again, we're often talking about so many different things. We're, we're often also talking about pretty privilege. We're talking mm. about being able to assimilate because of class and mm. all of these different things. Um, we're talking about being able to speak a certain way or speak Absolutely. even certain languages or, you know, have a certain knowledge set and, that may not actually be authentic, right? Like, right. is the code switching that I have to do? Does that is that version of me authentic more authentic than the version that isn't code switching? Right, right, right. Absolutely. You know, so I think we have to be able to disentangle what realness is, how it functions, and how much we're going to serve it and be complicit in it. Right. And I think, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about um, the Michael Jordan piece and because, you know, one thing that me and you do share, too, is, you know, my background, my parents were way more hippies. Um, <laughs> than than your parents were, but we still definitely. had was we did, but we definitely um still had like a very similar like middle class upper middle class background that is mm-hmm. like in in because most of my background happened in um Paulding County Georgia, um yes so 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 like it was again that's there was like this kindredness that I felt with you, but I think mm-hmm. because my parents were both queer and it was just like, that's kind of where it stopped when it came to like for like. <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading it, so, so I was, you're I was, saying you're more you're more well adjusted. That's that's what you're getting at. I'm more well adjusted to li- well adjusted to live in Brooklyn in 2024, probably. Like I'm, maybe, so, maybe. <laughs> but, but there's probably other there's probably so many places, even Manhattan right now, where it's like you're you're way more adjusted than I am because my parents were like, well, we're gonna listen to Col- Coltrane on a commune, and I'm like. You ain't tell me about taxes. Like, come on. <laughs> where, 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 oh where, no, they did. They didn't tell me about all, any of that either. So, oh, good. <laughs> we need a we need a we need a queer like a rainbow money thing. Like, we out of all the colors that the rainbow people need to f- concentrate on, green is one of them because <laughs> there's a a lot of us are like here. And we do not know how to navigate it because it's just it was never it was never. A possibility needed when you don't when you don't have you know um, yeah well yeah. yeah no that's so true um, well I want to circle back again because I the I'm still stuck on the realness and uh, passing conversation yeah and I know that we think of that as you know what well, we more so talk about it in the trans experience conversation or even a racial experience conversation. Mm -hmm. But I guess just sticking with gender, cis people try to pass as a lot of things all the time. You know, whether it's like the cis hat man who pretends he cares that the Chiefs won the Super Bowl or it's the cis hat woman who won't tell her mama that she doesn't want to have kids. Okay. So, I mean, those are all different types of passing. We just don't think about it or talk about it in that way. And 
again, that brilliant point, and I, you know, and you know me, I'll, I'll, I, I see your point, and I take you up one, is I'm so interested in class as well. And yeah. there's, when I look at so many Black women and Black folks um, talking about luxury and stuff like that, you're trying to pass Soft into life. something. Yeah, you saw like, but I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, it's hard outside. You don't, you, <laughs> you don't have to lie to us. We know it's hard. It's hard outside, and we can see it. And then even when I really, because New York is such a interesting place with how classes intermingle, um, it's so interesting to see like, and even in Atlanta, like, I just just because of my privileged background in Atlanta and seeing like black people who like had wealth. Black people, yeah. and more our black wealth, you know, yeah. so that's in air quotes. But to really see it and be like, oh, I know what it looks like. Like, I've been around the kids who have all, and they're black, and they have all, and they're doing things that I'm like, what, what is going on? And, and, and they're in Jack and Jill. And I see the performance of trying to get the passcode to have, to look like you have all. And those are different things. And that is, a, that's realness versus passing too. And you have to wear this, but don't wear it with this logo. Like that is all things that we have to think about, even in our own community. Um, when I'm with my, my trans girlfriends, like it's a thing to be like, Oh, that's too draggy. You know what I mean? Or that's too yeah. like that's too that, that's too drag. Like there's a there's a there's a always this like little tightrope that we're balancing. Mm-hmm. There is, there is, and I, I think the line is like we have to figure out well what are our preferences for ourselves and try not Absolutely. to project them on each other because we all have them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. One of one of the um one of the things that you do again, so this is more of a literary thing that you do, you kind of re revisit the idea of blooming. And um I think one of the things that I found like very like poetically brilliant about it, um, like like a very like Tony Morrisian quality that you brought to it was that when you when oh, you Lord. when you came <laughs> I feel like we have to start A getting our flowers. And then also, I think that we have to start talking to each other like mm-hmm. we are, because the grownups are leaving the building through death, through retirement, through through losing their damn minds. And you're like, oh, my God, we, we you should have took the mic. So I think that we have to start talking to our peers and to other people around us like they are the brilliance that they, that that they are so and mm-hmm. I and I want to say that how you use the litter in 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 in, you, in this text how you use blooming was really really brilliant and and to me when i think of black women doing brilliant literature i can't not talk about a tony morrison i can't not talk about a nikki giovanni who i just saw her doc like that's just like those people you have to talk about so even though it feels like a lot of pressure it's still like this is our family those are our great aunts those are our family so when we're writing we're writing in tandem with them but to my point you kind of you kind of revisit blooming and what you made me think about is that blooming is not a one-time event which i which i'm Honestly, I always think about because I I, I, I internalize ageism. So I'm like, so I'm like, mm. oh no, you bloom, you bloom, or you bloomed, and it's going. And how, and what you really made me rethink was like, oh no, you bloomed, and then you're blooming again. And there's another thing to bloom, and there's another thing to bloom. So, a thank you for that because that really yeah. woke something up in me. And then also, I wanted to make, I wanted to ask like. W- w- where do you see yourself blooming to now? Like, what's what mm. do you see? What's the next step? I guess. 
I guess that's what's hard is I feel like I'm in a completely new stage of my life, Mm -hmm. um, particularly on the other side of this book and not necessarily in terms of professionally, but personally, I think that writing on this level has required a different, a deeper type of vulnerability than I've ever shared with this many people. Mm -hmm. And so there are different requirements in my like inner tier uh, tiers of folks around intimacy that I didn't really kind of require before. There are different expectations around acknowledging conflict and moving through it. Okay. You know, um, and so many different things. So it's hard for me to know where I'm blooming to. It's like, in some ways I feel like, I'm a different kind of sprout right now. Mm-hmm. And then I'm on the journey to bloom again. But it's too early to tell what those challenges and lessons are going to be. That, that makes so much sense to me. And, <laughs> and because, like, you really intertwined, like, your professional journey with your personal journey in this, it makes sense. Um, I I wouldn't dare to know what where you should go personally. Um <laughs> But I would dare, not say I'm going to be right, but I would tell you where I hope that you bloom into when it comes to professionally. I wouldn't say anything personally, but professionally, what I would really, because you have the background in journalism, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You were at Out Magazine, right? Yeah. And sister, I think that like, and I see how important media is. I, I see that for you. Like, I see, I see, like, a, I, I, I see you having your own, like, media platform. I hear that because I, I think I'm definitely at a point where I, and I think a lot of folks who have been a part of our, our generation of media are burned. Yeah. Burned out yeah. and burned by yeah. how short-lived some of our experiences in these institutions have been. Used us up. Used us up, ground us up, and then there left nothing for us to go to, right? I mean, we're still seeing all of these layoffs. Like, it's, it's difficult. And then, of course, we see the consolidation of media under, to your point, right-wing conservatives. Like, it's... Unfortunate. And I mean, to speak more specifically about niche media, mm-hmm. it is unfortunate that Black folks in particular have so few outlets that we can lean on that are actually journalistically sound okay. and morally sound. Come on. Come on. Come on. <sighs> I, again, I love, love, love talking to you. And that is how, that's how I feel too. I, that's how I feel too. And I think that's how come even it, after reading the book, I wanted to even like plant like the inkling of it because sometimes it just mm-hmm. is, you first hear it and you're like, no, that's too big or whatever. But then 
you know, things happen, the universe has a way, you know, and then step by step, you're like, oh, this is actually more doable. And I try to put it in a couple of people's ears, but really one other person's ear. Um, And after reading your book, I was like, oh, my goodness, like, you actually know the hard part, which is the journalism and how to run a business. Because if you've seen a business tank, then you know how to run a business because that's the best <laughs> lesson of what to do. It um, is. So, because so, what was what not to do. So I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to put that in Raquel's ear. Like, I don't, I don't know. So, um, okay, well, look, I'm going to take listen, it. Listen. You know, it's, it's just a little bug. So we'll see if the bug bite me. You know, um, so there's a couple of questions as we um tri- as we um close. There's a couple of questions that we always ask everybody who is interviewed on the pod. The first question is, what's a piece of advice you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? A piece of advice that I've gotten over the years that has stuck with me so much. Um. I'll, I'll let my dad, you know, one of the things that he he, he would say, um, I'll let that come through. He used to say, um, you know, treat everyone with respect because you never know when you'll need them. And I know that that is that sounds very transactional in Southern. I love it. And very Southern. But I do try to live that way. Like, I I do try to be respectful of folks um, and friendly and open and warm. I mean, and some of that is also just, I think, my position in community now is like a a yelder, a youth elder, (laughs) a young elder, Um, because people be trying to auntie me every day, honey. (laughs) But... I think that that's true. And and especially in movement, because so many of us are working in similar spaces, we got to figure out how to let the work and the mission and the values connect us, even if we don't really mess with the person, right? Right, right, it, right. We're right. not going to love everyone, right? right? But I don't have to be good Judy's with someone to see, oh, we have similar values or we believe in in certain things that should happen collectively. And I need right. to be able to work with them. So right. and there's a difference between loving and enjoying, right? Like loving has like a <laughs> has, loving has a, a, a political when I think about Martin Luther King, Bell Hooks, loving mm. is a political f- f- political frame that we can put to it. And enjoying somebody's yeah. totally different. I'm like I already know who I come from. Like, my mother Mm -hmm. is a black lesbian woman. My sister shares Mm. a birthday with Nicki Minaj. So (laughs) I grew up around a lot of uh, enjoyable women. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it really was about that love framework and about, okay, this person is good at this, this person's good at this, you know? Or here's this common goal. Let's, like, go, go there. And I think that... I love that. I love, 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 love that piece of advice. What do you say to the people <laughs> that are giving up um, hope in this moment? Um, they read your book. They've um, fought in the streets online, anywhere they can, and still haven't seen change, um, the change that they want. What would you say to those people? Well, my baseline advice is 
learn from our ancestors and transcestors. Um, undoubtedly, they did not get everything that they desired in life. Right. But one of the calls of of our lives is to figure out how to build some type of liberation into it, even right. if it's not this kind of grand idea of what liberation is. Um, and leave the door open for next generations. Like that is a duty and a responsibility I think that we have, right? And that pulls us out of that kind of like harmful individualism mm-hmm. that I think the U.S. culture and capitalism instills in us and white supremacy and all these, all these different things, all of these ideas of scarcity. So I, right. I think that's what, that's my baseline advice. I think the other things are, or maybe just one more thing. It's just grace. Yeah. I think we have to give each other a lot more grace I think, and especially for folks that we are somewhat aligned with politically and and values-wise, like, there's a lot of, like, purity checking around how people navigate these systems of oppression. And that doesn't mean, you know, accountability is something that's thrown away, but I, I think that we just don't give each other enough grace. Like, there's so much going on in this moment. We have to be prudent and clear about where our energy needs to be directed. I 100% agree with that. I 100%. And I think that is the thing about leaning on the left and being in these Black queer circles and child black queer New York circles. It's so cannibalistic. And I'm like, if you knew how much anything goes in these other circles that are against us, I'm like, I think we will have a different relationship with how we do things. Um, Mm -hmm. And, 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 and what, and again, transgressing boundaries and, and teaching people and pedagogy, all those things are essential. But there's a way how cannibalistic we can be through what you're like naming that kind of purity politics, where I'm like, A, it's not sustainable. But then also, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's so disempowering and it's almost the exact opposite of what the people, other people do. And it's one of the reasons why they be winning the election sometimes. (laughs) So the question um, that I wanted to fit in, that I wanted to fit in with my larger questions was um, just, I feel immensely proud of you, I guess because I like read the Mm. book and I'm watching the interviews and I feel so proud of you. And I, and I was like, I wonder how she would answer this question, but what, what do you think your dad would say about this moment that you're Mm. having? What do I think my dad would say? I think my dad would be proud. I think there would be a shock, at least initially, that I would be so revealing about my experience. But I think he would understand at this point in my life, because a lot of my life has been not letting secrets silence me right, or right. disempower me. Right. Like, I had to come to a realization that the things I feel like are my vulnerabilities 
or my liabilities actually are my superpowers. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that he would get that. Definitely. In this in this point in my life. Definitely. And you know, as a unabashed woo-woo hoodoo <laughs> girl. So I definitely mm-hmm. believe ancestors are present and around us and mm-hmm. communing with us and guiding us and maybe having us do things that in the flesh you're like, this contradicts who you were when you're in the body. I don't know. Like I just see so much of who you are and the vulnerability and um I don't know, it's watching your speech with the book and thinking about like oh like having more contextualization to who you are as a person yeah. and, and how shy you were <laughs> and quiet you are and seeing there. I'm like, not only do I think that he would be here and be um you know, proud of you. I, I truly, in my heart, believe he is here and proud of you. And mm. I believe that he's like one anytime you are nervous and he's you feel settled or you feel a wave of confidence. I truly think that's his spirit because you can just see it on you that you're so supported. And again, I'm just proud of you. I'm really, really, just really, 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 really proud of you. And I'm just grateful to be able to share um, this moment with you. Um, Let the audience know how they can, um, how they can stay in touch, where they can hit you up at. (laughs) Yeah. um, RaquelWillis.com R-A-Q-U-E-L W-I-L-L-I-S I have this book out, honey. We've been talking about The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life cool. and Liberation. The audio book will be out soon. Um, and I also am an executive producer over at iHeart Media for the Outspoken Podcast Network. So I'm hosting two podcasts. In okay. 2024, one that's okay. already out the full season is Afterlives, which follows the life of Laylene Polanco, a 27-year-old Afro-Latina trans woman who died in Riker's custody in 2019. And then wow. the second show is Queer Chronicles, which follows the experiences of queer and trans youth in red states. So wow, I love that. this is where we are now. So... <laughs> Fall was a lot of work, let me tell you. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Buy Save the People this week. Don't forget to follow us at Cricket Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you enjoyed this episode of Pod Save the People, consider dropping us a review on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Vasilis Futopoulos. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson. Hey, this is Dorian McKesson with the podcast I think that you'll enjoy. The show is called Hazard NYC, and it's from our friends at The City. Samantha Maldonado, senior reporter at The City, and independent journalist Jordan Gaspore take listeners to Gowanus Canal, where pollution from an industrial past haunts its redeveloped future, and current flooding could get worse. Check out Hazard NYC, a four-part limited series exploring how climate change affects the city's Superfund sites from FAQ NYC. It's produced by the nonprofit news outlet, The City. Find Hazard NYC under the FAQ NYC banner.